Welcome to the official podcast of NASCA, the National Association of State-Controlled Substance Authorities. Here you will find conversations, lectures, and thoughts on various topics involving controlled substances. Leading experts sharing their knowledge and ideas on today's medications, dangerous drugs, and substance abuse. NASCA is an association of state government agencies, along with various stakeholders, who oversee controlled substances. Through this association, we work together to make our country, our world, a safer place. On this episode, I spoke with Dr. Lynn Webster about the effects the COVID-19 pandemic is having on those suffering with chronic pain and addiction. Dr. Webster is an internationally recognized expert in pain and addiction medicine. He earned his doctorate of medicine from the University of Nebraska and completed his residency in the University of Utah's Department of Anesthesiology. Dr. Webster is board certified in anesthesiology, pain medicine, and addiction medicine. Dr. Webster was the founder, CEO, and medical director of LifeTree Medical Incorporated, a multidisciplinary pain practice. In addition, he was also the co-founder of LifeTree Clinical Research, a small contract research organization that was acquired in 2010. Dr. Webster is Vice President of Scientific Affairs for PRA, a clinical research organization that operates in more than 80 countries, and he is the past president of the American Academy of Pain Medicine. Dr. Webster has authored more than 300 scientific publications and abstracts and is the senior editor of the Journal of Pain Medicine as well as a regular contributor to the Hill and Pain News Network. He is also the author of the award-winning book, The Painful Truth by Oxford University Press and is the co-producer of a critically acclaimed television documentary called The Painful Truth. Dr. Webster has appeared on national television and radio networks across the country and we are delighted to have had the opportunity to sit down with him for this program. Well, I'm here with Dr. Webster, and Dr. Webster is a internationally recognized speaker and really has an impressive bio, and I'm not going to do it justice, uh, but I was just kind of hoping, Doctor, if you could maybe talk a little bit about your background and, and where you're from. Sure. be glad to, and thank you for having me, Alan. Well, I've been in medicine. I'm a physician, uh, board certified in anesthesia, uh, pain medicine, and addiction. I started uh, my practice in 1980, so it's been some time. Uh, and I worked in the operating room for the first decade, for the most part. But that's the that's the time in which we really began to see the uh, field of pain medicine emerge. And so I started an acute pain service in my hospital, one of the first in the country. Um, and that grew into then treating cancer pain. And then eventually I was, uh, I saw a real need and I was experiencing a lot of rewards and trying to help people. So I started to treat non-cancer pain and, and that led to, of course, opioids were commonly prescribed, uh, certainly in the nineties and in the first, uh, the first decade of this, uh, century. And so using opioids, I was very concerned about the risk of uh, opioids because we all knew that they could cause harm and people could become addicted. Um, and so I decided to be, I decided to become an addictionologist. So I wanted to see the full circle so that I could diagnose a problem, treat it, prevent it. Um, and that's led me then to do a lot of research. When I started to do that, I've gotten into research, and over the last 20 years, I've 
conducted hundreds of clinical trials, uh, a lot of them on pain, but a lot of them in the addiction field. And I think I've probably done as much work as anybody on looking at the abuse deterrent formulations, but as well other analgesics that don't have uh, addictive properties. That brings me to here. Okay. And where are you located at? I'm in uh, Salt Lake City. Oh, okay. How's the, uh, how's the weather today? Uh, to, to today, it's really very nice. It's a nice spring day, um, or it feels like a nice spring day. It's not spring yet, but it's close. And I'm housed in, in my home like everyone else is. We uh, are just not able to get out because of this coronavirus uh, concern, and I'm following the rules. Uh, the same here, and that's that's why we're we're doing this by telephone. Of course, not only the distance, but for that reason as well. Which really kind of segues into what I wanted to talk to you about, which was how the coronavirus pandemic is really affecting uh, treatment as well as you know pain management. Maybe you could, if you could speak to that a little. Well, uh, I, I don't treat patients anymore. Um, I don't. Uh, treat pain or addiction, but I think I have my uh, finger on the pulse on both of those because I have a lot of friends there and I I do clinical research in both areas. And so I think what I see in the research area and uh, with my contacts who are in the field, but also individuals who have substance use disorders and have chronic pain, I think I have a sense of some of what they're going through because of what they've told me. And I think people don't appreciate that First of all, this you know this is a high risk population. People with chronic pain, people with substance use disorders are all high risk. You don't have to be 70. Um, we know that they are uh, they tend to be at least in the substance use disorder they tend to be more social. There's a lot more gathering, so there's a lot uh, there's a greater risk of course for uh, transmission. But if if you have an active disease or or if you're in treatment, you still have to have some type of an interaction with the healthcare professionals and often with other other people. So you can't isolate like a lot like I can and other members of my family. So I mean, there are a lot of ways in which this virus and negative impact on people with substance use disorder and pain. Many of many physicians are told to close their clinics. Even those who have been treating patients with uh, heroin addiction, substance use uh, uh, disorders across the board. So they're told that they may be able to do telemedicine if it's a buprenorphine issue, if it's methadone. I think that there are a lot of problems with getting access, but you can only have so much telemedicine. And um, I was just speaking to somebody who has been on buprenorphine recently, and the doctor decided that. He's no longer going to do that. He just didn't feel comfortable calling in a prescription of buprenorphine, uh, even though that is legal to do. And so the patient really was abandoned by uh, the clinician. So, I mean, there there are a lot of <laughs> there are a lot of uh, uh, difficulties. Access, you know, a lot of people with substance use disorder, particularly those with the more severe addictions, don't have money. And they don't have transportation. They can't get to places uh, very easily. And those places aren't even open. And And I think if you go to a methadone treatment center, you usually have to arrive very early in the morning and there's a line. So you've got that social interaction. Yeah, I think that it's problematic. I mean, the whole thing is uh, very difficult. 
When you talk to your colleagues, especially in addiction therapy, uh, are they discussing any of the relapse rates starting to rise from some of their patients? Oh, yeah. Not only relapse, the increased use of people who haven't before. And, you know, I think we have to understand why many people, maybe not all, but certainly many people begin to use substances. There's a need for people to feel better, whether they've had physical or emotional trauma in their life. There's always a reason to use substances because it makes them feel better. Everyone wants to feel good, not necessarily always to feel high. It's to escape the bad. And today, our environment of fear, fear of that fear of the virus, the just the ambiance, just the total ambiance of, of, of this virus has created a fear that sends some people into relapse. They think that they, you know, they're doomed. But I, I was just talking just actually this morning to somebody who said that people who have never used before are beginning to use it because of boredom, but also because of, because of the fear. And, and, and that's not just, it's not opioids only. I mean, this is THC, this is cocaine, this is methamphetamine, it, it, it's cross the board. And, and that makes sense because most people are polysubstance abusers anyway. And it doesn't matter if you're in pain, whether it's physical or, or mental, you're trying to escape it and you'll use whatever substance that you can get access to can help you relieve that pain. Yeah, and that's really changed dramatically, I think, with with the coronavirus. Just before this, I was doing a lot of lectures talking about polysubstance use. It's really turned into polysubstance atmosphere. And that, I think, is, is probably really intensified over this coronavirus issue as well. Well, it has. And, you know, you know as well as anyone that the problem with the, uh, I mean, there are a lot of problems, but one of the major problems with the polysubstance abuse is that you don't know what you're getting. And that's where we may have, you know, the, the methamphetamines and cocaine laced with the car fentanyls and, and some of the other fentanyl analogs, which of course has a greater uh, uh, lethality. So, Again, though, I mean, why why is this happening? Fear, you know, maybe boredom, but I don't think that's a major issue. I think it's mostly the relapses and the new cases that are developing. You know, we all feel it. I think I think I'm a pretty healthy guy. I've been lucky in my life, uh, but it's odd to sit in your home and not have any social contact. We uh, we as humans like social connection, and that. We need social connection. And without it, that increases your stress load, your anxiety. So you can't go out and scream or run. You just sit there. I mean, uh, for some people, finding access to some drug is their only relief, they think. Yeah, I think that you know, that's a very, very valid point. I know there's a lot of folks we talk about at-risk groups just individuals seeking help and treatment, not necessarily for an opioid-based medication, but I have friends that work uh, with veterans, and their anxiety levels have just completely risen to the point where now they're looking for 
uh, benzodiazepines as well. You know, and the vets, and it just breaks my heart because, you know, of everything that a vet has done for our country and that, you know, so many of them have, have had significant trauma that places them right on the precipice of, of danger, suicide, drug use, combination of both of those. And uh, this environment just may push them over, just like it is pushing some people um, back into uh, the abuse problem. So, you know, this, I think it's really important that people understand law enforcement, understand this, you know, the, the regulators understand that these are serious medical problems that often are associated with criminal activity, but it's not what drives. I mean, it's not the criminal activity that is the problem. It's the medical problem that is not well controlled, not understood, not managed uh, adequately. And so we're in a difficult place where our vets, non-vets, everyone with the stress, the underlying pathology, just don't get access to treatment. And if they're isolated, it just makes it worse. Before we continue our discussion, I want to take a quick break to inform our listeners about NASCA. The National Association of State-Controlled Substance Authorities is a nonprofit that consists of regular members and associate members. Regular members are from various state governmental agencies who have some authority over controlled substances. Agencies like state-controlled substance authorities, board of pharmacies, health departments, state attorneys general, or PDMP administrators. Associate members are individuals and businesses like pharmaceutical manufacturers, distributors, retail pharmacies, tech and data companies, and others. Their sponsorship provides funding that keeps NASCA operating and allows us to provide educational opportunities like webinars, podcasts, and the annual training conference. NASCA has an executive committee that leads the association. The executive committee is elected by the regular membership and only regular members are eligible to serve on the executive committee. In addition to the executive committee, we also have other committees where both regular and associate members work together. You can learn more about NASCA, its committees and educational opportunities by visiting our website at nasca.org. If you would like to know how to join NASCA or become a sponsor, please visit our website, nascsa.org. That's nascsa.org. Getting back to our interview with Dr. Webster, I started by asking him, about the effects this pandemic is having on our practitioners. You know, as if they don't have enough to worry about with the pandemic and the concerns there, they're still going to be dealing with those issues when they go to work every day. Well, they are going to be dealing, you know, if you're talking about all of what led to their misuse and abuse of the drug, that's certainly there. You know, I'm, I'm of the philosophy that most of it is it's half of it's genetic, at least if it's an opioid, and the other half is the stressors of life, which I call environmental factors. And some of us are born to cope better than others. And just because you have a genetic 
proclivity to like uh, the experience of taking an opioid doesn't make you doesn't mean you will, will develop a substance use disorder, but you're at a higher risk. The, uh, the key here is to have an environment which is supportive and not one that is threatening. And, you know, today, the, the coronavirus, the economy, you know, for, for those who have money where you're losing it all, they, these, are, these are powerful stressors that will prevent people that are trying to do well from doing the right thing, I think, sometimes. Let me ask you too, because you you had mentioned about uh, genetic factors, and that's something I had been talking about for a while. And, and I have I agree with you. I think that it has a lot to do with our physical makeup as to who we are and our vulnerability. What is your research or the things that you've seen how that matters in drug abuse? Well, it's a significant factor for opioids, and the genetics play a role also in your ability to cope with stress. So. Some of us uh, are born genetically uh, that make us more vulnerable than others. Yet, I think our environment is probably, even though genetics contributes to, to opioid, just opioid, everything else, and alcohol, to some, some types of alcoholism. But if you're talking about cocaine, you're talking about methamphetamine, uh, THC, other substances, it's probably more like a two-thirds is based upon the environment. So environment, that's the stress factors. I think, you know, one of, the, one of the most powerful factors that determines whether or not you will have a problem is really in your childhood um, experiences with trauma. So you're talking and about living like the ACE study. You're talking about things like, yes. like that. Yes. Yeah, the, uh, the, there is, I think the evidence is overwhelming uh, on uh, it's indisputable that if you are born in a family where there's going to be physical, mental uh, abuse, sexual abuse, you are at a great risk to abuse substances. It might be just alcohol. I shouldn't say just alcohol because there are more deaths from that than all of the other drugs combined. But it's serious and it's hard to escape the trauma, the scars in our brain when we're five years old, 12 years old. Sexually abused. Uh, it, you know, it, opioids it, fall, fall into a different category, and that's why I think once exposed, there is probably ten to fifteen percent of the population who's uh, who's at risk. Once exposed to an opioid, you're at risk to develop a problem. And every year, we have you know fifty to a hundred million people um, have surgical procedures in which they will receive an opioid. How we respond to that experience, even when it's rewarding, uh, really is, I think, our environment and the protective, protective measures. I'll tell you, when I was giving anesthesia back in the 80s, <laughs> uh, so I, I, it would not be uncommon for me as I was inducing, which means putting somebody in anesthesia asleep. Uh, when I'm inducing somebody, I would be injecting the medicine and they said, oh, doc, can you go home with me? This is wonderful. You know, I think actually a lot of the people who will be listening to this podcast probably experienced that. Well, you can take a pill and do the same thing. You didn't have to go to an anesthesiologist in the operating room to get that experience. But the question is, are you going to continue to go seek that or are there some other rewards in the line 
um, that are threatened if you do. You know, what's the trade-off? So uh, our environment is is a critical factor that drives, that is our upbringing, the environmental factors in our environment, our friends, our associations, our stress. These are key factors that determine whether we're going to relapse during a virus like we have, um, or we're going to be able to sustain. How do you predict we're going to come through this as far as pain management and treatment? Uh, How are those folks going to fare uh, at the end of this coronavirus? Well, they're not doing well now. People in pain are not doing well. You know, we somehow don't seem to get a ballot. We find we found ourselves with prescribing and making available far too much medicine, not knowing how to identify those who need it versus those who were abusing it, to now denying access to most everybody and forcing people to be in pain, undertreated. And we had overdoses before, now we have suicides. So it, it what I've always said, actually, I've said probably for 15 years when I began to see that there were some problems with with the, the serious problems with the drugs and the cultural attitudes that I think are uh, that have been with us for decades about opioids that are biased and the, the myths, the misunderstandings about these medicines. And once we, I, I think that the only solution for people in pain is for us to find alternatives to the current opioid that hopefully one day we'll never need to use morphine or oxycodone or hydrocodone in that we would have alternatives. But here's the kicker to this. There have been drugs developed that are safer and and are less likely to develop in a substance use disorder, but the, the society basically isn't supporting it financially, meaning that insurance companies don't pay for them. When you see methadone that's dirt cheap and um, morphine that is as inexpensive, um, that's what the payers want you to use before you can go to something that might be safer and just as effective, if not more effective, but it's cheaper. So we we need to change structurally our the way in which we take care of our patients and uh, finance our system so that we're looking at the public health benefit, the net public health benefit, and not just an episode of cost and care. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you spending some time with me. And I want to ask you before we leave, how are, how are you and your family uh, making out during the, the lockdown? Yeah, we're good. My wife's not kicked me out of the house yet, and uh, and that, that's probably a good thing. I mean, it's funny. You just kind of adjust, right? You you, you adjust in different things, and I sometimes go two days without shaving now, which is, <laughs> I haven't heard any complaints yet, but we are. I do want to say one thing, uh, Alan, that um, if you don't mind about, about this coronavirus thing that I I was a little bit surprising, and that is, it isn't just about the patients getting access to treatment. Um, it's also about the people who are not in treatment finding it more difficult to get access to their drugs. So I've heard that the cost of cocaine and marijuana in many places has gone up 10, 20, 30%. And so the supply is harder to get because of the lockdowns 
You can't, the people are just not walking around. The suppliers are not there. The demand is up because of the, uh, because of the stressors, because of the boredom the, and the relapse. So the prices are escalating. Yeah, that, and that's actually I, true. Met, that's actually true. Yeah. That, that has happened. The dealers have capitalized on this. Yeah. And of course, the supply isn't quite there. And there is a, a fear or a concern that we're going to see a rise in methamphetamine production in the United States, where before it was being controlled mostly from the cartels and being shipped in or being supplied here. But now with the lockdown and the you know the problem in, in imports, we're a little bit concerned about individuals that are going to start back up with the one pot or the shake and bake methods of methamphetamine production. And they can also do a couple different methods too. They can do the anhydrous ammonia method or the red pea method. Are you seeing that yeah. or indications of that out, out west? Well, I, I don't I don't know about what you just said because that's more in the weeds than where I go. But I will say that we uh, methamphetamine uh, over uh, associated overdose deaths exceed all opioid overdose deaths. The methadone clinic here just prior to this had talked about how every single person that was coming in every new case were all testing positive for methamphetamine. Yeah, yes, I believe it. Yeah, it's a it's a problem, and again. What is the problem? Well, really, it is the underlying disease, the mental health problems we need to address. I agree. Well, thank you very much for coming on. I wish you well and stay safe and stay healthy. I wish you well, too. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Alan McGill. On behalf of the executive board of NASCA and our education committee, I want to thank our guest, Dr. Lynn Webster, for his insight into the effects our current healthcare crisis is having on those suffering from pain and addiction. I also want to thank our platinum, gold, and silver sponsors. Without them, we could not provide educational opportunities such as this podcast. You can find all of our episodes wherever you find your podcasts. The music for this podcast provided by Joseph McDade. If you like Joe's music, please visit josephmcdade.com. And you can support Joe on Patreon. NASCA also invites you to join us at our annual training conference, where we educate through networking, exchange of ideas, and by experiencing some of the best speakers on current topics and trends involving controlled substances. To learn more about NASCA, our conferences and educational programs, visit our website, nascsa.org. I hope you learned something and move forward. Please join us again on our next podcast.